the Constitution impacts so many people and their everyday lives. And because the Constitution is vastly important, its proper interpretation is also extremely important. Welcome back to Runnymede Radio. I'm Christopher Kinsinger. Joining me today on the podcast are Brian Bird and Derek Ross. Brian is an assistant professor at the Peter A. Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia. And Derek is the executive director of Christian Legal Fellowship, Canada's national association of Christian lawyers and law students. Brian and Derek are the co-editors of the recently released book, The Forgotten Foundations of the Canadian Constitution, which was first released as volume 105 of the Supreme Court Law Review, second series. Both volumes were published by LexisNexis and can be purchased on the LexisNexis Canada website. Gentlemen, welcome to Rainy Radio. Thanks, Thank Chris. You so much. Brian, we've had you on the podcast before. I think it's been a few years, but Derek, I believe this is your first time appearing on the podcast. So uh, welcome uh, for your, your first time ever on Running Meet Radio. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be with you. We'll dive right in then. We're, we're talking about uh, your recently published collection, The Forgotten Foundations of the Canadian Constitution. You were both the uh, general editors on this uh, volume, which was also published as a special edition of the Supreme Court Law Review. But I, I want to start by zeroing in on that title, which the book is obviously called The Forgotten Foundations of the Canadian Constitution. Uh, what does that mean? What are these foundations and why are they forgotten? For sure. Well, you know, when we first embarked on this project, Chris, one of our overarching goals was to try to help facilitate a more holistic understanding of the Constitution, including this idea of constitutional structure. Um, And that comes from some things that the Supreme Court has said over the years. In the Senate uh, reference most recently, uh, it said that the Constitution should not be viewed as a mere collection of discrete textual provisions. It has an architecture, a basic structure. So this idea of constitutional architecture or constitutional structure really resonated with us, um, and especially this idea that we are instructed by the court not to view the Constitution as this random collection of isolated protections. And yet, for practical purposes, the nature of litigation is that You know, the court is asked, usually, to resolve a very specific dispute, one which usually does tend to focus on a specific textual provision um, and is often looked at in isolation or somewhat discreetly. For example, a freedom of expression dispute, obviously it's going to focus on Section 2B um, and uh, not necessarily all of the other provisions that form part of this constitutional structure. So most cases don't call on the court specifically to interpret the Constitution's overarching themes or structure or architecture. But the result of that uh, is that there's this concern now that our case law has produced something of a, uh, a piecemeal patchwork approach that tends to focus primarily on those provisions which happen to be the subject of disputes without consideration of how all, the, these, how all of these provisions fit together how they might be part of a larger scheme, um, and how they're informed by other constitutional provisions which might not get as much airtime, so to speak. So with this project, with the Forgotten Foundations Collection, we really wanted to zoom out 
and look at the Constitution the way the Supreme Court has said we need to look at the Constitution, which as which is essentially as an interconnected, cohesive whole, not a random collection of siloed provisions. And so in setting out to better identify that overarching structure, that's a huge undertaking, obviously, more than we could really undertake in a single volume. So we really view this as just the start, hopefully, of a, a larger, broader conversation. We don't purport to address every aspect of the Constitution, which has been under-examined. Um, but we wanted to start with some of the fundamentals, some of those basic principles, which the text of the Constitution itself indicates that it is founded upon or which it is building from, um, things that, though, maybe have been or at least are at the risk of being forgotten because they don't get as much attention. Um, and so, as we say in the book, this project is designed to try to illuminate the blueprint of the Constitution, and so we felt that a closer examination of some of its foundations was a logical place to start. You, you, you're talking a lot there, Derek, about the idea of the Constitution needing to be interpreted holistically, uh, to interpret constitutional provisions in, in light of other constitutional provisions, and in light of the principles that reinforce the Constitution. So is it fair to say, in your view, that the, the vision, to the extent that this collection has a unifying vision uh, of the Constitution that's being presented, is one of uh, coherence and, and trying to understand, as you say, the Constitution, not just as discrete provisions, but as this, this, broader, um, th th this broader collection of documents and, and principles and conventions that are pursuing uh, specific, one might even say, normative ends. That's exactly right. Wanting to look at this idea of cohesion, constitutional consistency, this idea that one provision of the Constitution can't be interpreted in a way that contradicts another. But not only that, that you know, all of these provisions coexist. And so we can't ignore the existence of one right or freedom or one constitutional provision while we're interpreting another one, which might have some type of nexus or intersection or connection to it. And so what we wanted to do with this project really was just to look at what are some of those other perhaps lesser known or lesser developed sections of the Constitution to which all the other ones are connected and whose interpretation uh, they must be informed by. And, and, you know, I don't want to dwell like too much on, on just the impetus for the project, but it's interesting here. You're talking about the ways in which different provisions and sections of the Constitution relate to one another. And even the way you're approaching it seems to suggest that uh, it, it, it would seem to counteract this temptation that we perhaps have sometimes to look at different provisions in the Constitution as being in tension with one another. And when we are in, in for example, cases where multiple rights are said to be engaged and there are so-called competing rights uh, to, to not approach that as a zero-sum game, but to understand those rights and freedoms as informing one another and, in fact, reinforcing one another. No, I, exactly. I couldn't have said it better myself, Chris. <laughs> well, well, we'll move on and, and talk about the ways in which this project is a follow-up to uh, a previous uh, project that you and Brian and Professor Dwight Newman from the University of Saskatchewan did. And... Uh, in some ways, this book, The Forgotten Foundations of the Constitution, is a sort of sequel to this earlier collection on the forgotten fundamental freedoms of the Charter. And that was also uh, published with LexisNexis and as a special edition of the Supreme Court Law Review. So how do the themes from this new book that you've just published and the issues that are explored uh, in this volume relate to the themes and issues that were explored in this earlier work on the forgotten fundamental freedoms? 
Well, Chris, thanks so much for uh, having us in for these questions. I think, uh, Derek, and you have really set out in that your conversation so far, um, kind of the impetus for the project and what we were really focused on in this one. And I wanted to also mention that it was wonderful that this project, uh, the Forgotten Foundations, was released in 2022, which happens to be the 40th anniversary of the Charter and the 155th anniversary of the uh, Constitution Act of 1867, uh, Confederation. And you're right that in many ways, uh, this is a, a sequel to that previous collection on the forgotten fundamental freedoms of the Charter, which came out uh, in 2020, uh, which Derek and I co-edited with uh, Professor Dwight Newman of uh, the University of Saskatchewan. And I think it's fair to say that that collection from 2020 was um, inevitably very focused on the text of the Constitution and particularly one kind of um, portion or sector of the text, namely section two of the uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which houses the uh, fundamental freedoms. And so our, our focus in that um, in that uh, collection, the authors who contributed to it, was to give further life and uh, breathe more life into some of the uh, fundamental freedoms in section two, which arise from the text of section two, that have been dormant, uh, kind of fallen by the wayside, have been sometimes even not really considered at all, um, and some that have just been under-considered, under-defined. And so this um, uh, current collection from 2022 uh, on the Forgotten Foundations was in some ways meant to go um, beyond the text, kind of sometimes just between the lines, um, and you know, building on what you were talking about with what Derek had mentioned in his um, uh, description of the impetus for this project, I would say that um, one of the ways in which, or two of the ways in which we try to bring different um, aspects of the Constitution together, I think there's kind of two threads or lenses or axes that kind of come to mind for me. One is um, obviously bringing together the textual and the non-textual, the written and the unwritten. Um, one right. of the areas of kind of siloing uh, that can occur, uh, I think, and has occurred kind of quite often, is kind of, you know thinking of the unwritten parts of the Constitution in their corner and the written parts in their corner. And I think what we have in this collection is a real effort by several of the authors to bring those aspects together um, in various kind of ways. The other kind of lens or thread or theme that I think kind of goes throughout this current collection is basically Canadian constitutionalism after 1982, which of course was a big mm -hmm. moment, uh, described it by one of our contributors, uh, Justice Barry Strayer, as a constitutional revolution. Um, mm -hmm. It was a big moment looking at post-1982 constitutionalism in Canada and pre-1982 constitutionalism in Canada, trying to bring those uh, two eras, if I can put it that way, together, because they have often been, um, indeed, kind of, understand for understandable reasons, uh, siloed or isolated or very much kind of um, spoken of uh, separately. But I would also just mention that in some cases, some of our authors, some of our contributions in this collection are very much building on that 2020 collection on some of the forgotten fundamental freedoms, particularly I think of the contribution in the current collection by Professor Emerita Jamie Cameron of, uh, of Osgoode mm -hmm. Hall, building directly on her work, in, on her contribution to the 2020 collection on freedom of expression in section 2B, taking that one step further uh, in this um, in this collection to kind of further, um, basically proposing, proposing a very bold kind of overhaul of how we understand that freedom in light of, amongst other things, you know, the notion of freedom uh, writ large in, in our constitution and when that freedom can be justifiably limited. Another example would be freedom of religion. Uh, Section 2A pops up uh, quite prominently in, for example, the contribution by Professor Blair Major of uh, Thompson Rivers University, mm -hmm. and connecting that freedom to the other section, uh, section of the Charter, Section 27, which refers to the multicultural heritage of Canada and how that provision 
that interpretative interpretative um, provision um, speaks to or relates to or speaks with or converses with freedom of religion. So definitely you can see some very clear um, next steps in, in these um, uh, from or it's a very kind of clear sequel moments, if I can put it that way, um, from the 2020 collection to the 2022 collection. But at the same time, I think it was also a, meant to be a deeper dive, going beyond the text, beneath the text, beneath uh, between the lines, and as I mentioned, mm-hmm. but looking at those various kind of um, kind of um, areas of our constitutionalism that have been separated, kind of building on what Derek said, kind of isolated, put into different corners for understandable reasons, but we think it's important, as the Supreme Court has invited us to do, to bring them together. And it's really fascinating to see the ways in which uh, the themes that you both developed with Professor Newman in this earlier volume are being continued on now in, in this volume, and, and there's really a, a really encouraging building out of the scholarship on these these issues which haven't always perhaps uh, received uh, this kind of concentrated attention before and I want to talk a little bit uh, toward the end of the podcast and our time together about what you have next but uh, in terms of your next uh, project that you're working on but for the moment I want to kind of zero in on some of these specific contributions that were made to this collection and specifically the papers that you both respectively contributed and Derek, I'll start with you. Your paper is specifically on the meaning of the phrase free and the free and democratic society as it is used in section one of the charter. And this idea of what you call freedom from assimilation. And you were talking about the ways in which this book is in many ways about, uh, both of you have talked about the ways in which this, this book is about uh, principles and the way that principles inform the text of the constitution. And so here we're really talking about this uh, this discrete part of the text of section one, which the, by and large, the jurisprudence hasn't really focused very much on. If you look at the leading case on section one, R and Oaks, uh, free and democratic society is, is really not mentioned uh, at all. So Derek, in your view, what is the relationship between these concepts of a free and democratic society and freedom from assimilation? Yeah, well, great question, Chris. And, um, you know, our jurisprudence on Section 1 is very extensive. There, there's been a lot of it. We certainly can't say that Section 1 has been forgotten. Um, so some listeners might be curious why we're talking about Section 1 and, and our forgotten foundations. There, there certainly has been a lot of rich scholarship on that provision. But one thing that struck me, and Brian, this is really something that you highlighted to me in some of our conversations and that you've observed in your work as well is that when we think of Section 1, of course, we think of the Oaks Test, or we think of Doré, um, and those cases do, of course, uh, connect to the text of Section 1, but neither of those frameworks really make explicit reference to the phrase in Section mm-hmm. 1 of a free and democratic society. Certainly, its principles are referenced in the cases, it's implicit in those frameworks, but it doesn't seem to get a lot of explicit consideration in the analysis as it is being applied. And yet, if you go back and read some early Section 1 jurisprudence, especially some of those decisions written by Chief Justice Brian Dixon, the phrase free and democratic society is seen as very important, really at the heart of Section 1. And there's one quote in particular that I think bears just quoting. It's it's how I open the paper. It's from Keegstra. And uh, this is Chief Justice Dixon writing. He says this, In the words of Section 1 are brought together the fundamental values and aspirations of Canadian society. 
As this court has said before, the premier article of the Charter has a dual function, operating both to activate Charter rights and freedoms and to permit such reasonable limits as a free and democratic society may have occasion to place upon them. What seems to me to be of significance in this dual function is the commonality that links the guarantee of rights and freedoms to their limitation. This commonality lies in the phrase free and democratic society. So there's a few things that I try to unpack from that in the paper. The first is this idea that Section 1 has a dual function. It doesn't exist only as a limitations clause. We, we sometimes, myself included, characterize Section 1 really primarily, if not only in that way. We talk about it as the limitations clause, how Section 1 can save charter infringements or limitations as if it's the government's champion. Mm -hmm. But the, the flip side of the Section 1 coin is that it is the guarantee clause as well. That's what its subheading says. It exists to activate rights, according to Justice, Chief Justice Dixon. So it's not the government's champion so much as its challenger, a constitutional mm -hmm. guardian, really, that insists that the state meet a very strict standard whenever it takes action that limits our guaranteed rights. And so then the question becomes, well, what is that standard? Well, according to that passage I just read, according to the text of Section 1, it's the principles of a free and democratic society. In another case, the court said that the underlying values of a free and democratic society both guarantee the rights in the Charter and, in appropriate circumstances, justify limitations upon those rights. So this phrase is doing a lot of heavy lifting. It's really the linchpin in bringing, breathing life into Section 1's dual role, and yet it does seem to be understated, at least in um, recent iterations or applications of the Section 1 analysis. Uh, that was something actually the dissent observed in Trinity Western, uh, where the dissent observed that Section 1 is sometimes being applied as if charter rights are subject to the limits imposed by statutory objectives. Mm-hmm when in fact the text contemplates that rights and freedoms be subject only to limits that are demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So what I explore in the paper is that, you know, instead of assessing rights infringements based on the proportionality of their impact on state objectives, we need to weigh both rights infringements and the government's objectives against the Charter's ultimate standard, which is the principles underlying a free and democratic society. And so then the million-dollar question, of course, is, well, what are those principles? Mm -hmm. um, and again, surprisingly, there hasn't been a whole lot of case law on that. Really, the, the um, exception uh, has been Justice Dixon's comments in Oaks. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a very significant, very eloquent passage. It has been repeated um, frequently by the court uh, and, and lower courts, where he articulates a list, a, a non-exhaustive list, of what he describes as the values and principles essential to a free and democratic society. Those include respect for the inherent dignity of the human person, commitment to social justice and equality, accommodation of a wide variety of beliefs, respect for cultural and group identity, 
and faith in social and political institutions which enhance the participation of individuals and groups in society. So in my paper, I look specifically at two of those principles, one being this idea of respecting or accommodating a wide variety of beliefs, and the other being respecting cultural and group identity. And I explore some uh, pre-charter and post-charter jurisprudence um, to identify how one of the defining principles of our free and democratic society that is expressed in a number of the Constitution's protections is this idea, this commitment to pluralism and its corollary, freedom from majoritarian assimilation. And I explore how those concepts might be more specifically and intentionally reintegrated into the Section 1 analysis. And in some ways, Derek, I think this this paper follows up from your contribution to the Forgotten Freedoms uh, Collection, uh, which focuses on the unifying features of, of Section 2, which you describe as being the, the protection of truth-seeking. But I, it's funny, as you were, you were talking, I um, was drawn back, back to uh, another uh, quote from uh, Chief Justice Dixon, or, or Justice Dixon, as he then was, uh, from R and Big M Drug Mart, focusing on the role that the fundamental freedoms play within uh, our tradition. And I'll, I'll read it to you. This is from, for those who want to look it up from uh, page uh, 122 of the Big M Judgment. Uh, an emphasis on individual conscience and individual judgment lies at the heart of our democratic political tradition. The ability of each citizen to make free and informed decisions is the absolute prerequisite for the legitimacy, acceptability, and efficacy of our system of self-government. It is because of the centrality of the rights associated with freedom of individual conscience, both to basic beliefs about human worth and dignity and to a free and democratic political system, that American jurisprudence has emphasized the primary or firstness of the First Amendment. It is the same centrality that, in my view, underlies their designation in the Charter as fundamental. They are the sine qua non of the political tradition underlying the Charter. Uh, I apologize for the lengthy quote there, Derek, and putting you on the spot with this, but I'm wondering if you can just kind of respond to that a little bit uh, as well, because it seems to go to the heart of what you're saying when we're trying to understand this meaning of the phrase free and democratic society, and perhaps uh, bridging that um, the relationship between sections one and two of the charter. For sure. And, you know, it is very interesting that both sections one and two do refer to freedom. Um, they're not in tension with one another. They both prioritize this notion of freedom, um, perhaps in, in different contexts and slightly different conceptions. Um, but, you know, it does raise this really important question of how does the state justify a limitation on freedom in a free and democratic society, uh, which by definition prioritizes freedom. Um, and so that's why Section 1, I think, has a lot uh, of, uh, and there's a lot more potential for this phrase uh, to be doing some significant work in Section 1 and in balancing some of these competing considerations, competing interests, and not just balancing them, but, but reconciling them. Um, but what I thought was really significant in uh, Section 2 itself, and again, the, the purpose of, as Brian mentioned, uh, the previous collection on the Forgotten Freedoms was to look at Section 2 holistically. Um, and to recognize that um, all the freedoms listed there are not duplicative, they're not superfluous, they each do their own work 
Um, they're separately delineated for a reason. And so we can't assume that freedom of expression uh, exhausts the protection that is afforded by things like freedom of thought or freedom of the press or freedom of the media. But what I wanted to look at is what are the common themes underpinning each of these freedoms? Conscience, religion, thought, opinion, belief, expression, media of communication, the press, peaceful assembly, association. Why are these listed as fundamental and only these as opposed to any other number of forms of, of freedoms or liberties that we might think of? Why have these been given priority? And what unites them? Uh, and as I went through it and uh, looked at some of the jurisprudence, some of the case law, what I did discover, and I detail it much more in my chapter, is that each of these fundamental freedoms, in their own way, as you mentioned, Chris, they serve to protect the pursuit of truth. Not an entrenchment of any particular conception of truth, not an endorsement of a specific truth claim, but really the freedom of each person to independently seek truth, free of state interference, political truth, artistic truth, scientific truth, philosophical truth, all of the Section 2 freedoms in their own way can be seen as protecting space for citizens to develop, learn, grow, and obtain, either individually or in association with others, a better understanding of truth in all of these various spheres of life. And this, by the way, includes the freedom to seek truth about the idea of truth itself, or, or even to reject the idea of objective truth. The right. point is, each of these freedoms protect us from being forced to accept and embrace the state's conception mm -hmm. of ultimate truth, and instead allows us freedom to pursue our own understanding of truth. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's the only common theme underlying these freedoms, but it is one of them. And, uh, you know, I think that's important going back to Chief Justice Dixon's comments in Big M that you've just referenced in terms of, you know, what unites and what are some of the underlying uh, conceptions that our charter and our constitution as a whole exists to protect. So continuing on this theme uh, where we're focusing on these parts of the charter that are really entrenching, arguably, uh, principles that predate the charter, uh, this idea of, as, as Justice Dixon said, uh, the fundamental freedoms as being the sine qua non of the Canadian political and constitutional tradition and the ways in which uh, Section 1 also reinforces that. Brian, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your contribution to this latest volume, which focuses on Section 26 of the charter and the guarantee of what you call unchartered rights. What, in your view, are these unchartered rights and this is perhaps a little bit more of a controversial question, but do you think they are justiciable? Sure, Chris. So the, um, my paper, uh, my contribution to this volume springs from um, Section 26 of the Charter, which is at the same time probably the most intriguing provision of the Charter and the most mysterious. Um, and Section 26 of the Charter says, and I'll just read it, it's a short uh, provision, the guarantee in this Charter of certain rights and freedoms shall not be construed as denying the existence of any other rights or freedoms that exist in Canada. So this is uh, one of these provisions which when you read it, it kind of um, jumps off the page. One, has, one wonders right away, well, what are those other rights and freedoms that, to quote Section 26, exist in Canada, which don't happen to appear in the Charter, but 
are out there and would seem to have some sort of legal life or expression. And so this is a, you know, a provision in the Charter that has been, if you actually look you know, in uh, Canley or um, Quick Law and search for Section 26, there are a good number of rulings in which, um, court rulings in which it pops up, in which the court has made passing reference to Section 26, but there isn't very much sustained scholarly or jurisprudential consideration of what those other rights, those unchartered rights, as I call them, unwritten uh, rights and freedoms that don't exist in the, don't exist in the charter, but are said to exist in Canada, and what what their identity happens to be. And so the focus of my paper actually dovetails, I think, quite nicely with Derek's focus on this phrase of a free and democratic society in Section mm -hmm. One of the charter, because what I try to do with the paper is as a way of perhaps trying to get at what those other rights, those unchartered rights and freedoms are in Canada. I make the claim that by further understanding what the essential ingredients or components of a free and democratic society are, you will inevitably shed light on what those other rights and freedoms, those uncharted rights and freedoms are in Canada. Because, and the Supreme Court of Canada in a couple of decisions, um, I'm particularly thinking of the decision of R.V. Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S mm -hmm. from 1987, the court noted that you know, the... <laughs> basically says that the charter can't possibly kind of um, in its text kind of cover the entire landscape of kind of fundamental rights and freedoms and all of the values that come out of that phrase in a free in a free and democratic society that are unpacked, you know, not exhaustively even by cases like Oaks through uh, Chief Justice Brian Dixon's statement that Derek um, quoted earlier. In other words, there's more out there and that the charter is not kind of mm -hmm. the end of, and it has become tempting uh, kind of going back to one of those threads I mentioned earlier that this uh, collection tries to focus on to think of many of the rights and freedoms that are found in the text of the charter kind of being almost the beginning of rights and freedoms, legal rights, even constitutional rights and freedoms in Canada that 1982 was ground zero. And before that, there was no such thing as a kind of a, a constitutional protection of certain rights, but it doesn't take much too much digging to see that uh, that's not the case. That indeed there was constitutional protection for certain fundamental rights and freedoms prior to 1982. And so, to your question as to whether you know what these rights, these uncharted rights and freedoms are, and whether they're justiciable, I basically I don't directly answer that question. Although, for example, I do uh, allude to the fact that you know where there has been recognition of. Um, of constitutional protection of certain rights and freedoms prior to 1982, which Section 26 seems to suggest aren't extinguished by the, the passage and adoption of the Charter, it would seem that Section 26 would bolster the notion that those rights and freedoms can be um, can be uh, litigated. And so um, scholars like uh, Professor Ryan Alford of Lake, Lakehead University, who contributes a wonderful paper to this collection as well, has done a lot of work on this notion of implied fundamental rights that existed long before 1982 in our constitutional um, kind of order, largely inherited from the United Kingdom. And so that would be one example in which you could make the argument that that's a, an unchartered, in other words, a right, a right of freedom that does not exist in the text of the Charter, but that does exist um, in our legal order that could be um, litigated. The courts have pointed to, uh, interestingly, in these passing references over the years to Section 26, they have mentioned things like um, access to the courts, um, the right to form contracts, um, even kind of property rights 
um, in kind of that have existed and have been kind of long been a part of the common law tradition predating Confederation, going back centuries. That these are you know, the Canadian Bill of Rights from 1960, uh, mm-hmm. being an example. Uh, the Supreme Court of Canada has said that that is an example of unchartered rights and freedoms that still continue to have um, force and effect today, you know, post 1982. So there are a lot out there, but my kind of key. Um, I guess at the end of the day, focus in this paper was to say, listen, we can get a better sense of what those rights and freedoms are through looking at and unpacking this idea of a free and democratic society in section one. The more we understand that um, uh, concept through looking at quotes like um, and um, things like human dignity, um, mm-hmm. faith in political and public institutions, the quote that Derek um, uh, uh, reproduced uh, from, from Oaks, the more we will get to answering that question of what those unchartered rights and freedoms are. And then the flip side of that is, it would seem to me that there's this kind of, as I put it in the paper, kind of a subtle but significant synergy between Section 1 and Section 26, such that when you get to a Section 1 analysis in a case where uh, charter right or freedom has been found to be um, uh, infringed, and now the question is whether that infringement is justifiable in a free and democratic society, it would seem to me that it would be fair game to, if the case and the facts of the case and the context call for it, to bring in consideration of these other rights and freedoms uh, that are said to exist in Canada in the broader question of determining whether a given limit on a charter right Mm -hmm. of freedom happens to be justified in a free and democratic society. So you can see how by learning more about section one, we, I think, I claim, we learn more about those uncharted rights and freedoms, we give them, make them less mysterious, perhaps. But on the flip side, when we get to a section one analysis, we can, I think, justifiably um, take into account the effect that a limit on a charter right or freedom might have on a, a negative effect that it may have on other rights and freedoms that are said to exist in Canada. So I think, you know, actually at the end of the paper, I say that these two provisions, Section 1 and Section 26, could literally be read together. So I'll just read Section 1 and Section 26, mm-hmm. and I, I, I kind of I, I put them together, um, and it seems to me that it's quite a remarkable, in my view, that they read very smoothly and could have been, who knows, um, I'm speculating big time here, maybe they were at some point in the same paragraph. If I were to read them together, this is what Section 1 and Section 26, one after the other, would sound like. The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in it subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. The guarantee in this charter of certain rights and freedoms shall not be construed as denying the existence of any other rights or freedoms that exist in Canada. So it was Hmm. striking to me when, as I just read, when I put these two provisions together, it does seem like there is, even just from the textual kind of, um, the way they kind of flow off the tongue, a reciprocal relationship, a subtle but significant synergy that we need to look more into. So that's, in a, in a, in a nutshell, the gist of the paper. So are some of these rights uh, justiciable? Well, if, uh, if some of those other rights and freedoms that exist in Canada, if some of those uncharted rights and freedoms are those pre-1982 constitutional protections, it would seem to me that they are certainly fair game. And I want to focus a little bit on what you just emphasized there about these being pre-1982 uh, entitlements, because I think there's a, a tendency or, or perhaps a wariness by some when they hear talk about Section 26 to think that uh, the argument that's being made is that Section 26 somehow constitutionalizes uh, any other right or freedom that would have existed 
prior to the charter. And uh, the late Peter Hogg very much took the view that Section 26 did not fill this function. But listening to you, and, and again, thinking about the work that Professor Alford has done, and, and I've engaged with his work quite extensively, that's not really what you're talking about here. And, and this kind of relates to the broad theme of the book as a whole. We're, we're not talking about the Charter somehow constitutionalizing things that existed before, but the Charter rather as being one stage in a constitutional evolution. And so Section 26, uh, not creating something new so much as just affirming what came before it. I think that's right. I think it's a, that's a very important point. Thank you for making it, Chris, is that if Section 26 did not exist, in other words, if the framers of the Charter had decided not to put it in, I don't think any of us would say that um, the pre-1982 constitutional protections that um, that exist would be non-justiciable. Uh, the Charter didn't extinguish them. What Section 26 makes clear, almost out of an abundance of caution, so to speak, is to remind us, is to remind Canadians that by virtue of passing this Bill of Rights and entrenching it into our Constitution, we didn't do away with the rich, very robust um, set of kind of constitutional protections and that constitutional heritage, which does has given rise to certain liberties and, and, and freedoms and rights uh, prior to 1982. They still exist, they still continue. Um, Section 26 is just to kind of make it very, very clear that, um, that uh, so it doesn't, they were constitutionalized before, in other words, they were already part of the Constitution prior to 1982. But what else, what's also important to note is that many courts have, um, in their passing references to Section 26, as I mentioned in my previous comments, have referred, referred to what are clearly seen as kind of non-constitutional rights, if I can put it that way, kind of common law rights, such as you know, the right to form a contract, for example. So it is a very broad provision, uh, which I think covers and um, uh, or reminds us of, uh, it's a very helpful reminder of the existence of uh, constitutional protections prior to 1982 of certain fundamental rights, but also kind of makes us makes us kind of avoid thinking of rights and freedoms as only existing within, frankly, kind of the public law realm. That a lot of kind of things that we take for granted, mm -hmm. such as the right to enter into a contract, um, we wouldn't necessarily think of that as kind of a constitutional discussion, but they're no less kind of rights in that kind of very um, loose sense. So I'll just uh, pause there, but I think that, that there's a lot to be unpacked out of Section mm -hmm. 26. Well, it, it strikes me that there's sort of these kind of accompanying, um, I don't know if dangerous are the right word, but uh, two, two potential fixations that we can have when we're talking about rights and freedoms. And the first is to fixate uh, entirely on the charter, such that we come to the conclusion that uh, if the right of freedom is not laid out in the charter, that uh, that it, it doesn't uh, exist or enjoy any kind of uh, constitutional status or it must be constitutionalized by the charter to exist. Uh, but then even broader, more broadly, as you just said, Brian, this idea that there are potentially rights and freedoms that exist uh, at the common law, which are not constitutional rights per se. And so it, it seems that there are times when our um, our fixation on kind of these fields of constitutional law and charter law uh, maybe lead us to uh, to forget those facts. Absolutely. Uh, I would just say that, you know, it's interesting, the, the reminder that Section 26 provides to us about not kind of getting overly focused on the Charter, as important as it is, um, in terms of mm -hmm. understanding of rights and freedoms within the Canadian legal system, uh, despite its presence there in the Charter, uh, I think that reminder um, has I mean, not been neglected. I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, I, I don't remember learning about Section 26 in first year con law. And I know there's, as a professor now, I know there's only so much time and we can't go through everything. But it was one of those moments where I opened up the charter, looked through and saw Section 26. 
um, I don't know if I if I had seen it before, to be perfectly honest. So, mm-hmm. um, and there are other provisions um, in the charter which are covered by other contributions in this collection, which I think uh, many constitutional scholars even would, uh, and certainly most Canadians would say, I had no idea that that was uh, anywhere to be found in the charter. So, one of the things we try to do with this collection is just to put just to raise, frankly, awareness of certain provisions um, and their implications that have uh, just gone by, got kind of fallen off our radar. Well, let's let's move on and talk a little bit about that then, and and some of the other papers that were contributed to the collection, because obviously you are both not the sole authors. This is an edited collection, and there's a real, uh, a really remarkable uh, uh, lineup that you have here. Some really leading scholars in the collection that are writing papers on themes such as the importance of the rule of law in the Canadian Constitution. Uh, mentioned Professor Alfred, who writes about the use of legal history in constitutional interpretation. Other Papers focus on the limits, constitutional or otherwise, of state authority. What do you think we can learn from these intellectually diverse perspectives? And in what way do these contributions uh, invite us to interrogate the received wisdom of how we think about the Constitution and its contents? Well, thanks for that, Chris. And I'll start off just by saying that um, Derek and I were very, very, very fortunate to have just a wonderful, and I mean this with all sincerity, wonderful group of authors, both in terms of the quality of their um, their submissions and their what they provided uh, and, and, and contributed to this uh, collection of essays, and also on top of that just to work with them. It was an absolute pleasure and a privilege as editors, and I think I can speak very confidently for both Derek and myself, to work with them. And uh, mm-hmm. you're very modest, Chris, because you happen to be an author as well who has collect, uh, con- contributed to this collection, and that uh, comment... Full, full disclosure. <laughs> that, that, that comment applies to you as well. And so I do, in saying that, I'll apologize if I don't cover all of the um, uh, submissions, uh, contributions uh, in in my comments that are about to follow, just to say that it is well worth, they are all worth uh, a read um, or two or or three. And so um, I'll just kind of go through a few and maybe Derek can tidy up any um, big things that I've missed. But one area that certainly comes to mind that the Kind of an area of excavation or construction that we 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 wanted to include in this collection, and we're very lucky to have three great papers on it. Is the preamble uh, to the charter, which um, focuses mm-hmm. on this notion, these twin notions of the rule of law and the supremacy of God. And so we have papers um, by, for example, uh, Professor Dwight Newman uh, of uh, the University of Saskatchewan, who invites basically serious uh, reflection and consideration of the supremacy of God clause, which to date has been generally kind of skated past by um, by courts, um, including the Supreme Court, uh, with some exceptions, but he, in a bit of a, kind of a legal history um, uh, kind of a, a, a exploration, goes back to the, the drafting of the Charter and really tries to show why this wasn't just kind of a, a phrase that kind of you know, slipped in, that it did have um, a weighty meaning and consideration, and it, it's not an accident. Um, and so it should be, shouldn't be treated um, as, as such, if I can put it that way. And so he invites, through his paper, uh, through the lens of, I suppose, uh, the drafting of the charter, um, you know, that we should take it seriously. And then we have a wonderful paper that kind of dovetails nicely with, with Professor Newman's by um, John Sycama um, on, um, with this very, I think, uh, very nice title of uh, this notion of the first division of power. And he views the preamble as, in very, um, from in a very kind of broad sense, um, indicating quite clearly that limited government is the uh, the, the, the kind of um, the hallmark of our of our legal system that this notion of Canada being founded on principles that recognize the rule of law and the supremacy of God, which is what the pre- preamble says, 
um, indicates that government is not kind of the supreme totalizing kind of um, um, entity that you know kind of um, that, that governs that it is there's a certain humility that is invited uh, by that uh, or suggested by that preamble and so he says kind of the first division of power is this notion of there are certain things that the state can do and there are certain things that the state can't do it has a certain authority a certain scope that it's it can act within but it's not this kind of supreme authority that can do uh, everything and anything um, and then we have this um, paper a wonderful paper by as you mentioned uh, Mark Mancini who's a, a PhD candidate at the uh, UBC Peter A. Allard School of Law on the relationship between the rule of law and administrative law and Mark's takeaway mm -hmm. is that um, the rule of law dictates or requires that legislatures do not um, uh, kind of take away the ability of courts to, to um, scrutinize the decisions of administrative actors in Canada on anything less than a correctness standard. In other words, administrative actors, when it comes to their interpretation of the Constitution, have to get it right. Uh, they, they can't kind of, um, uh, there's, a, there's a high standard, I have to get the correct answer. And so he speaks about what the rule of law dictates or requires in the administrative law context. I may just pause there to see if Derek might want to chime in at all in any, any aspects of the preamble papers, if I can put it that way, and perhaps any other papers that kind of really come to his mind in terms of uh, how the, the kind of challenge received wisdom, if that's okay, Chris, if you don't mind me kind of uh, jumping yes, in as our moderator for a second. <laughs> no, and I, I would just echo, Brian, your comments of uh, what a privilege it was to work with each of the authors, and, and each of these papers really could be a podcast in and of themselves, so um, want to do them all justice, but uh, Brian, of course, your paper on Section 26, um, I think is accompanied nicely by a paper written by Professor Matthew Harrington at the University of Montreal, where he does a really fascinating uh, comparative constitutional analysis of Section 26 of the Charter with the Ninth Amendment of the United States Constitution, which contains, uh, you know, somewhat similar wording. Um, and so there's some great work being done there. Um, also, um, you mentioned Professor Cameron's work on how do we understand freedom in freedom of expression. A lot of the jurisprudence is focused on what expression means, what it protects, what it covers, but what is our constitutional conception of freedom itself. And she looks mm -hmm. at some pre-charter cases, uh, especially some of uh, Justice Rand's jurisprudence and, and other pre-charter jurists, and um, does a deep dive in some really fascinating um, case law that uh, I think has a lot to say and continues to share a lot of wisdom for some of the challenges that uh, we're navigating today with freedom of expression um, and uh, its appropriate scope and application. Um, no, that's that's wonderful. It, I mean, it, it it's a really um, again present company uh, excluded, referring to myself. It really is uh, a really impressive range of, of papers, and you should both be commended on just the the effort that went went into soliciting these uh, these really leading thinkers uh, and and scholars on these issues and and putting together, uh, if if I can say, like such um, a holistic collection and, and a collection that's not just again, you know. Not to get too meta here, but the collection itself is not just a discrete collection of papers, but they really do build off of one another and uh, and, and touch on many uh, related and important themes. So as we talk about those themes, though, um, you know how how are the ways um, that this collection isn't just about abstract ideas, right? It's it's not just something that is good for uh, for us 
uh, legal scholars and nerds who, who really like to talk about some of these constitutional issues. Um, are there real world cases where courts are being called upon to adjudicate some of these issues? So for the practicing lawyer, how do these, uh, these papers uh, relate to what they're doing and, and what can they learn from them? Sure. Well, I can jump in on that and, and also invite Brian to uh, share any thoughts he might have as well. But, you know, obviously we feel this collection is very relevant uh, to real world cases. It was never intended to be purely an academic uh, publication. Uh, it has some very important practical uh, application as well. And, and for starters, at a very basic level, um, going back to our discussion at the beginning, the court has made clear that when it comes to constitutional interpretation, Basically, any charter case requires consideration, not just of the provision that's squarely at issue, but other provisions with which it may be connected or structured. And that goes back all the way to Big M Drug Mart, where um, the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Dixon, said that the meaning and purpose of a charter protection is to be determined by examining, among other things, the meaning and purpose of other specific rights and freedoms with which it is associated as well as the character and larger objects of the Charter. And that's been repeated by the court many times. Uh, in the Quebec secession reference, the court also said that the individual elements of the Constitution are linked to the others and must be interpreted by reference to the structure of the Constitution as a whole. So this isn't just an academic pursuit. The court has stressed that right. this, this is really crucial to how we interpret the Constitution in real life disputes. So if we're going to engage in a meaningful analysis of any given constitutional provision, we need to ask not just what they mean as standalone protections, but why they are grouped with other specific provisions and, and whether those other provisions inform their scope and boundary and meaning. So that's sort of a general overview, but in terms of specific cases, absolutely. We, we are seeing, just as an example, uh, more litigation involving the notwithstanding clause. Uh, and by the way, uh, Professor Jeffrey Sigalette has a terrific article on Section 33 and, um, you know, how we should understand or how we might need to better understand Section 33 and the work it's doing in contrast to the work that Section 1 is doing um, in that uh, both might be seen as limiting, limiting rights or at least the application of rights, but these are two very different uh, provisions. But in addition to that, you know, with some of the specific litigation involving the notwithstanding clause, it raises the question of, you know, is the notwithstanding clause the end of the story when mm -hmm. it comes to the protections that might be offered by the Constitution? Um, and the answer is not necessarily. Uh, the notwithstanding clause applies to some charter protections, but not all of them, and certainly mm -hmm. not all of the Constitution, more broadly speaking, uh, its protections as well. So thinking, for example, of the litigation around Bill 21, in Quebec, the prohibition of religious symbols for certain public sector workers. That's a case that Christian Legal Fellowship is involved in. That raises a number of questions, um, not only about the scope of the notwithstanding clause and how that provision, section 33, might be informed by other provisions of the Charter, um, but to the extent that it is said to suspend the application of section 2 and sections 7 to 15, um, it does raise the question of, well, what other constitutional provisions may still be relevant? Ones which perhaps may have been overshadowed in recent years um, and which may need to be re-examined. 
And those are all themes that this collection explores as well. Tabitha Eward and Andre Schutten have an excellent paper on Section 31 of the Charter. And again, Section 31 is perhaps one of those provisions that falls in the category of uh, what uh, Brian was referring to earlier, which is a provision that um, not a lot of folks necessarily think about. Uh, but it says that nothing in the Charter extends the legislative powers of any body or authority. Uh, it hasn't been the subject of a whole lot of jurisprudence um, to the extent that it has been interpreted by the courts. It's largely been in the context of affirming that the charter does not change the division of powers between the provincial governments and the federal government set out in sections 91 and 92 of the British North America Act. In other words, nothing in the charter gives either the federal government or the provincial government more power vis-a-vis each other. Mm -hmm. But what uh, Andre Schutten and Tabitha Ewart explore is this idea that it's not just about the division of powers, but Section 31 also means that nothing in the Charter grants more power to the federal or provincial governments vis-a-vis the citizens of Canada. Mm -hmm. And so uh, nothing in the Charter, including Section 33, can be said to encroach or claw back on any rights and protections that might have existed prior to its enactment in 1982. And so those are some really fascinating themes that um, that I think will be explored in future jurisprudence as well. But I'll just, you know, just to wrap up that, that question, you know, in terms of why this is practically important, you know, I think it goes back again to where we started, and that's this idea that the Constitution needs to be understood holistically, right? It might, might be sounding like... Uh, um, repeating myself here, but but no provision exists in a vacuum. And, and it's so important that we not lose sight of that because the Constitution impacts so many people and their everyday lives. And because the Constitution is vastly important, its proper interpretation is also extremely important. As we say in the introduction to the book, constitutions seek to help shape and order society in some of its most fundamental ways. And if our Constitution is to provide guidance to us as we seek to address fundamental questions, questions like how our institutions should function, how we accommodate religious differences, how we protect human dignity, how we, how we respect freedom and equality, and how we promote human flourishing, then it's really important that we come to understand the Constitution's entire cohesive structure, not just bits and pieces of it. That's excellent. Uh, and, and probably, um, you know, we, we've had such a, a great and, and uh, wide-ranging uh, discussion of these things. Uh, and before we conclude our, our talk and, and, uh, and, and bring things to a close, I just, um, you know, want to ask about what you both are planning next, because as I understand, Understand it. Uh, this is not uh, the last time that you're both collaborating on uh, an edited collection of this sort. I, I do believe there is, in fact, um, uh, a threequel that is coming out. Correct? 
That's correct, Chris. And I just wanted to say before I mention um, what we're working on next that um, I think we've, at least in passing, uh, mentioned almost all the papers that appeared in this collection. Uh, you have a wonderful paper on uh, religious freedom in Canada in the pre-Confederation era in the 1700s, which is just a wonderful contribution to that kind of sector yeah, thank of you. our constitutional order. But we were extremely um, privileged to have two amazing um, esteemed jurists uh, mm -hmm. contribute to the collection, Justice Marshall Rothstein, um, mm -hmm. judge of the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, contributed a paper on what it means to take the text uh, of the Constitution seriously, how to go about interpreting the text. And we also had a wonderful foreword um, provided by uh, Justice Barry Strayer, a name that may not be as um, uh, as familiar to, to kind of Canadian lawyers, but he is, it's no understatement, uh, one of the architects of the 1982 um, constitutional moment in terms of the Charter and the Constitution Act of 1982. He later became a, a judge in the federal court uh, system uh, in Canada and is just an, an, a, rem a remarkable Canadian and we owe a lot, uh, frankly, to what we are talking about today and what the, and, you know, the, even the fact that we're writing up or have written, have um, assembled this collection to, to his work as one of the principal architects. Uh, so we're very indebted to Justice Barry. Strayer for his contributions uh, as well. So we're very lucky to have both mm -hmm. of them involved. And in terms of what's up next, we were um, our next uh, um, edited collection will be on Section 1 of the Charter, specifically focused on, uh, we've spoken quite a bit about it today, especially this concept of a free and democratic society. I think that inspired us to organize a conference um, that happened earlier this year uh, that you, you attended and participated in, Chris, and um, on Section 1 of the Charter and uh, the need to uh, perhaps uh, revisit um, and re-examine and take a closer look 40 years on, uh, 40 years into the Charter of is it living up to its promise um, and what it's and, and living up and fulfilling its role. And so we have that uh, on deck, so to speak. So we are now in the, uh, in the process of assembling those um, uh, articles. And uh, I think it's fair to say, um, I'm, I'm, I'm very confident in saying that it's going to be an excellent uh, collection. We have a wonderful group of authors uh, that are contributing, and this will also be published by uh, LexisNexis Canada, just as this collection that we've been talking about today was uh, published by LexisNexis, as well as the previous one. So we're very, also, I want to take a moment just to be, to ex express uh, my gratitude and on behalf of Derek as well uh, to LexisNexis for being such a wonderful partner. Uh, so stay tuned for uh, this collection on Section 1 of the Charter, which we kind of uh, call the, the constitutional anchor, um, and it's going to be a wonderful collection coming out next year. Well, I can't wait to uh, to have it in hand and to read it. But in the meantime, uh, if our listeners want to pick up a copy of The Forgotten Freedoms of the Charter and The Forgotten Foundations of the Canadian Constitution, both of those, as you've said, were published by LexisNexis and can be purchased on uh, LexisNexis's online store. But Derek, Brian, I want to thank you both for taking the time to come back onto the podcast today. You're obviously uh, no strangers to Friends of Runnymede. You make frequent appearances at our events. And as always, we're just very grateful for the time that you give to explain these ideas for us. Thank you, Chris. Thanks so much, Chris. And if I can just close again with um, perhaps an encouragement to, to your listeners um, to consider engaging in some of this scholarship. As, as we said at the outset, we view this book as the start of a conversation. There's still so much to our Constitution to be explored further, um, to be examined further. There are other provisions that we would... Um, you know, very much love to see further scholarship on. As Brian was talking about Section 26 of the Charter, of course, you know, it's a, it's important to also reflect on Section 25, um, which also makes reference to, um, 
uh, Aboriginal treaty and other rights and freedoms that pertain to the Aboriginal peoples of Canada prior to the Charter. Um, it, there's other provisions in the Charter as well, Section 28, guaranteeing rights equally to both sexes. There, there's so mm -hmm. much to be explored, and there are indeed scholars doing some important work in this area, and we just join them in um, calling for more attention to be paid to these provisions. But yeah, thanks so much, Chris, for having us on. It's a delight to chat about the book. And uh, the introduction to the book is posted online on uh, Brian and my uh, SSRN pages. So uh, we'd welcome folks' feedback on that as well. Thank you, Derek. And and obviously, we at the Ready Meat Society want to facilitate those conversations. And we've had uh, panels and events on, on some of those other themes you mentioned, and we continue to plan to do so. And so we invite those who are engaged with this issue uh, to reach out to us uh, as we are promoters of uh, intellectual diversity in the legal academy. We want to make sure that these, uh, these issues and these uh, themes are being discussed and interrogated thoroughly. But thank you again both for, for coming on, and we look forward to seeing you back on the podcast soon and uh, at future Running Meet events. Thank you, Chris. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks for listening. Running Meet Radio is a program of the Running Meet Society a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and legal scholars committed to the principles of constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Our podcast sponsor is LexisNexis Canada. Follow us on social media and stay tuned for more interviews with leading Canadian jurists and legal scholars. So long for now.